0: Coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter.
1: I feel confident in saying the vast majority, 90 plus percent Muslims, do not want to wage Islamic Jihad, a violent holy war against Jews or Christians. But there is the subset that do. And they look to the Quran and other texts and they say, no, 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 this means we're supposed to wage this hatred.
0: Welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. Today, we're featuring part three in a series that Joel gave at Calvary Church Albuquerque titled Critical Issues Facing the Epicenter. Previously, we explored questions like Are the Jews the chosen people? And were the Jews given the promised land? Since throughout history, Jews have been the target of scorn and vitriol, violence and genocide. We wanted to present this keynote message from deep in the Joshua Fund archives and consider the question, why does the world hate Israel? We hope you enjoy this message from our founder, Joel Rosenberg.
1: Good morning. It's an honor to be with you guys this weekend. Uh, It's been an honor every time that your pastor has invited me here. I'm just so grateful to Skip and to Lenya for their friendship and kindness to my wife and Lynn and the boys and I and and to the Joshua Fund team that we minister with, uh, blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, according to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Obviously, those are the famous verses where God said he will bless those who bless the children of Abraham and curse those who curse them. And and so, of course, for Lynn and the boys, myself, we thought, well, you know, we should know which side of that equation we want to be on. And and Skip and Lenya, bless their hearts, they have made that same commitment even years before we did. This is a critical thing, though. It's not a small thing. Uh, What we've been talking about in part one last night, part two this morning of this series is there's an intense battle. It's not new, but it's intensifying this battle over whether God even loves the Jews or has just cut them loose. Let's just recap. He hasn't cut them loose. God loves the Jewish people, and he says he's loved them with an everlasting love. And I'm just thinking, I don't have a doctorate, but I don't know, I think everlasting probably means everlasting, right? That's just me. And... uh, Now, there's a battle over whether God gave the land to the Jewish people, the promised land. But God said, and we went over it in detail this morning, that he not only gave the land to the Jewish people, but he gave it to them, quote, as an everlasting possession, unquote. Now, again, I'm just thinking, doesn't everlasting mean everlasting? But yet this battle remains. There's this intensifying battle won by radical Islam to annihilate Israel and the Jewish people, and by some in the church uh, worldwide to delegitimize Israel through replacement theology, this idea that God is done with the Jews, uh, there is no more special favor for Israel or the, uh, the Jewish people, and that God has replaced his love for the Jewish people with the church exclusively. And we've talked about how that's not true, and yet this hatred continues. In John 16, uh, it's a very interesting passage, John 16, verses 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples, he was speaking about a very specific context at that moment about the persecution that the early followers of Jesus were going to experience from some other countrymen, but he says something interesting, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. This is interesting. An hour is coming when everyone who kills you thinks they're doing a service for God. I believe that while one of those fulfillments of that prophecy was certainly at the time of the book of Acts, when the disciples, again, were really struggling, you know, the Apostle Paul, as Saul, he was killing Jewish believers in Jesus, And he thought he was doing a service to God. He was arresting them, persecuting them. And the Lord then changed his heart. Amen. Now we live in a day where radical Muslims believe that by killing Jews, by killing Israel, by annihilating Israel, they are doing a service to God. Why do they feel that way? It's because, the Lord says, they do this because they don't know the Father or the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they don't have a love for Israel and the Jewish people. They don't know how Israel is the apple of God's eye. This threat of radical Islam is, is very, very serious. The first two messages we talked about, the threat of replacement theology, but I want to talk about this threat of radical Islam and why do people hate Israel and the Jewish people so much? They certainly do. Uh, you know, generally, of course, all Muslims don't hate Israel and the Jewish people. Let's just be really clear. The vast majority of Muslims are moderate, they're peaceful. Now, some people think that's controversial when I say that, but I've done an enormous amount of research, traveled extensively uh, through the region. Iraq four times, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Egypt, uh, Turkey, Morocco, Jordan, the Palestinian areas, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. And and I, I wrote a book last year called Inside the Revolution taking you inside the Muslim world to try to understand it better. And I, based on an enormous amount of research, it's over a 500-page book, I feel confident in saying the vast majority, 90-plus percent Muslims, do not want to wage Islamic Jihad, a violent holy war against Jews or Christians. But there is the subset that do. And they look to the Quran and other texts, and they say, no, 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 this means we're supposed to wage this hatred, and particularly a hatred against Jewish people. Uh, In the Quran, it describes uh, the Jewish people as descendants of apes and monkeys. I mean, this is where this comes from. Again, not that all Muslims feel this way, but there's a percentage that do. And what's interesting is that in Iran, the leaders of Iran currently believe three things. They are not just Muslims. They are Shia Muslims, which are about 15% of the Islamic world totally. 85% or so are Sunni Muslims. 15% are Shia Muslims. And they're based mostly in Iran, Iraq, the Persian Gulf region, and sort of what they call a Shia arc that starts in the Persian Gulf area and then goes up to Syria and then down into Lebanon, right to the border of Israel. So 15% of Muslims worldwide are Shia Muslims, and they all believe that their Messiah is coming one day, in the end of days, and they refer to him as the Mahdi, or the promised one, Or the 12th Imam. And they believe that he's coming and that he's going to establish a global caliphate, a one world government that's run by the 12th Imam. All religious Shia Muslims believe this. But there is a subset within Shias known as Twelvers. Now, the Twelvers, they don't just believe that the 12th Imam is coming one day, they believe three things, if you boil it down. One, they believe that the end of days has come. It's not far off. The end of time has has arrived. Second, they believe that this 12th imam, their so-called Islamic messiah, is going to be revealed to the world at any moment. Not, you know, hundreds or thousands of years away, but they believe it's, it's imminent, that the leaders of Iran are using the term imminent in the last few years to say, this is right on top of us. Third, they believe that the way to hasten or accelerate, to speed up the coming, the revelation of this 12th Imam on earth, is to annihilate two countries Israel, which they call the little Satan, and the United States, which in their end time theology is the great Satan. Now, I've written this new novel, The 12th Imam, to try to sort of imagine. What in the world are these guys talking about? And what would it look like if these things played out? What if the world waits too long and doesn't take decisive action? And Iran's leaders do, in fact, acquire, develop nuclear weapons. They already have high-speed ballistic missiles. Were they to get nuclear warheads also and attach those to the missiles, they could do in about six minutes what it took Adolf Hitler nearly six years to do, and that is to kill nearly six million Jews in Israel. And that's not even their main objective. That's just the little Satan in their view. We, as Americans, are the great Satan. We are their ultimate objective. But this is dangerous. So this novel it sort of takes you into this world. why right, what if? What if Iran gets these weapons? And moreover, what if this 12th Imam actually comes to Earth? Now, you know, some of you might be thinking, you're a follower of Jesus Christ up there, aren't you? Yes, I am. And so you think Jesus is the Messiah, don't you? Yes, I absolutely do. So why would you write a book about, you know, sort of positing that the Islamic Messiah would come? Well, that's because in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is giving a whole list of, of signs that will precede his, his own coming... He warns of wars, rumors of wars, you know, nations rising against nations, all kinds of traumas, natural disasters, persecution of the believers, the spread of the gospel, all kinds of things will be happening. But three times in Matthew 24, Jesus warns of false messiahs coming in the last days, false prophets, false teaching. And in fact, the third time that Jesus mentions this, he mentions specifically, well, let's just read it. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, verse 23, beginning. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise, not might arise, not could arise, there's a 60-40 chance, 51-49. No, Jesus is saying false messiahs and false prophets will arise. Well, they're not going to really deceive anyone. Well, yes, they're going to deceive many. We read back up in verse 5. It says, many will come in my name, saying I'm the Messiah, and will mislead many. Back to verse 24. So these false messiahs will arise. Well, they're not going to have any demonstration of sort of supernatural powers, right? Oh, Well, actually, it says, they will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance... So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out there. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, match that with uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, where where the Lord tells us that when Jesus comes for us, he's going to descend from heaven. And we, well, first of all, the dead in Christ will rise be resurrected and we who are still around at that moment, those of us who have received Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, that were born again and we happen to be living at the moment when Jesus begins to descend, we will be caught up with those who are being resurrected and we will meet Jesus in the air. Now Jesus is saying false messiahs are going to come in the last days, they're even going to be able to do some supernatural activities to sort of deceive people and draw them up, But If somebody says, go out to the wilderness, out to Mecca or Iraq or Iran, I think the Messiah has come. Or look, he's having a special conference in wherever. Don't go there. If you're not in the air, it's not him. It's fairly clear, right? But even though that's true, it doesn't get around the question. There are people who believe that not only is there what we know to be a false Messiah coming, But their level of hatred is so intense; they literally believe that you need to annihilate Israel, the Jewish people, from the face of the earth. We've seen that from Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, from the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khamenei. Khamenei this summer, in July, even said that he had met personally with the 12th Imam. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Did he meet with a person? Did he see a vision or a dream? Did some sort of spirit? I don't know But he believes this is true And they are building for the moment For an apocalyptic horrifying war To wipe Israel off the map But still where does that Hatred come from I mean why should they even care How many times is Jerusalem Mentioned in the Quran Zero It's mentioned over 800 times in the Bible No wonder we think it's important Because God thinks it's important Jerusalem is literally not mentioned in the Quran. Why? So, All right, so where does this come from? And why, do, why are we at an hour where radical Muslims, not all Muslims, but radical Muslims, believe they're doing a service to God to kill Jews and destroy Israel? Well, this is not the first time in human history that an Iranian Persian leader has threatened to annihilate the Jewish people. Turn with me for a moment to the Old Testament uh, to the book of Esther. And we look at Esther chapter three, very interesting. There's a supreme leader described in this chapter, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes is uh, the Greek version. And he's got a prime minister or a president, uh, the number two guy and his name is Haman. These are not guys that are friendly to Jews, okay? Now what's interesting is the president decides we've got to kill these Jews. And so what what does he do? Verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, throughout the Persian Iranian empire at that time. And in verse 13, we even get a more precise example or case summary of what he wants to do. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces throughout the Persian empire to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, including women and children, in one day. They set a date. They set a goal. They sent the word out. They set into motion a plan, a plot, to not just kill and destroy, but to annihilate the Jewish people. Now, why does this word annihilate resonate in the hearts of Radical Muslims, and particularly the current leaders of Iran. When you look at events worldwide or current events, or particularly if you look at events in the epicenter, in the Middle East, if you look at them only through geopolitical lenses or only through economic lenses, I would argue that you really can't see in three dimensions. Only when you look at events also through what I call the third lens, the lens of the Bible, the lens of Scripture, do things become a little clearer? When we look through all these lenses, we see at its core this hatred for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. It's not driven by a battle over land or power or money or influence. Those are certainly things that come up and are cited, but this is not You know, Satan hated the Jewish people. The Persians hated the Jewish people and wanted to annihilate them when Israel didn't exist. That's, in the book of Esther, the Jews are in exile. Why did Hitler want to annihilate the Jewish people? There wasn't an Israel. Israel wasn't occupying any land. They're not violating any UN resolutions. This was not about land. When you look at this issue through the third lens of scripture, it becomes clear that this hatred for Israel, this hatred for the Jewish people, is satanically driven. This is driven from the depths of hell itself. Now in John chapter 10, verse 10, we get a snapshot of the difference between Satan and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a famous verse. We often use it in evangelism. It's useful in this context. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, okay? But Jesus says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There, in one sentence, you get a lot of rich theology, that these two, our Lord Jesus Christ and Satan, are polar opposites of each other. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly, here and now, and for all eternity, if we'll give our lives to him and receive him, and his death on the cross as payment for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead as proof that he is truly the Messiah. He is truly the Savior. He is truly the only way to get to heaven and spend eternity with the Father. That's Jesus' role, to bring that good news, to be that good news, to be the word incarnate. Satan's role only is to be a thief. He comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Now, once you understand that in one sentence, all of the theology of Jesus Christ versus Satan from Genesis to Revelation, it's captured in John 10.10. Now, let's apply it to this individual situation. If Satan is the exact opposite of our Lord Jesus Christ, then he wants the exact opposite of what God wants, right? So God chose the Jewish people to bless us. And Satan said, good, I will choose them too, but to curse them. God gave the promised land to the Jewish people. Satan said, I will rob it. I will steal it away. God created Jerusalem, Jerusalem, to be the city of peace. Satan said, no, I will make it the city of bloodshed. God chose the Temple Mount to be holy unto his name. Satan seeks to desecrate it, to create an abomination that causes desolation right at that spot. Why? Because God has a plan for Jews, and a plan for the land, and a plan for Jerusalem, and a plan for the Temple Mount, and Satan has the exact opposite plan. If God had chosen the Japanese to to sovereignly bring the gospel through, then Satan would have uniquely hated the Japanese. If it had been Brazilians, okay. God chose the Jews, really, and I say this as a Rosenberg, an insignificant people. I mean, God says in the, in the Old Testament, we're not the most people on the earth. I mean, if God was going to choose the most, he would have chosen the Chinese. When my, wife, we, my wife and I have, I have four children, but when we had three, when we were, and she was pregnant with the fourth, uh, one of our friends said, well, you know, prepare yourself, because your next child is going to be Chinese. We said, Chinese? Why, why do you say that? Well, one in four children in the world are Chinese, so therefore... <laughs> so. And God obviously didn't choose us for our height. He would have chosen Skip and his people to, to be the chosen people. So obviously, God just chose us sovereignly for whatever reason, but because God chose Jews, Satan said, fine, that's the target. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, let us know. Go to joshuafund.com and use the Contact Us form to provide feedback. Likewise, if you'd like this podcast to continue, you can donate through our giving page, and you can find that link in the upper right-hand corner at joshuafund.com. Now, First Chronicles 21 is an interesting text, First Chronicles 21. It's interesting to study it in its full context, but there's one verse, 1 Chronicles uh, 21 verse 1, that's... Just noteworthy in the context of what we're saying right now. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. God had told David not to do a census. Why? So that David wouldn't think, oh, good, I have all these troops. Then I will trust in my troop strength rather than in the Lord. Okay? The Lord didn't want him to know all that he had. He didn't want to add it all up. But Satan stood up against Israel. And he moved David, a Jewish leader, to do something against what God had told him to do. Because, why? Because that's who Satan is. He is standing up against Israel. He is trying to destroy Jewish leaders. He is trying to destroy God's plan and purpose. That's who he is. And then when we understand that, things become a little clear. Revelation chapter 12. I know you're moving quickly with me. Stay with me. Revelation chapter 12. This is a very interesting passage. Because it talks about the centrality of Israel in the last days. Uh, You know, people say, well, God is done with the Jews, and that's Old Testament. But in the New Testament, no, 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 no. We've covered that in the first two messages. But let's look at Revelation chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would uh, be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to hit a few other pieces so we tie this thing together. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now come with me down to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And now verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, And went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, I encourage you to study the entire chapter of Revelation 12. My goal here in in skipping around is only for time's sake, not to leave critical pieces out. So I encourage you to go line by line, verse by verse, through Revelation chapter 12. While you're at it, do the entire book of Revelation. Skip's got a great book coming out uh, next year on the book of Revelation, I think it'll be very helpful. Because a lot of people say, oh, you know, Revelation, who can understand that? Women and children and dragons, I mean, come on, really. I mean, you know, nobody takes this stuff seriously, why do you? And, and even if you took it seriously, who can understand that? And if you, even if you did understand it, it's all gobbledygook, and, and God doesn't really, it's all allegorical, metaphorical, blah, blah, blah. Listen, it's not that difficult. But you have to understand how to slow down and study the text Carefully. Now, this woman. Who is this woman? Well, she's described in verse 1 as being clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And a lot of people are like, exactly. (laughs) That doesn't mean anything, brother. I mean, come on. Don't get all hopped up on stuff that you can't understand. Okay, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, by the Lord himself, uh, has these children. One of them is named Joseph. Joseph has a dream. And let's take a look at the dream. Verse 9. Now Joseph had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers. Who are these brothers? These are the children of Israel, right? These are the 12 tribes. And Joseph says, Lo, I've had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Why were there only 11? Well, because he's the 12th, right? So, and they're bound down to me. Now, you know the story enough to know that didn't go well for Joseph. But it didn't mean it wasn't true. It just means his brother's freaked out. You've got to be kidding me. We're all bound down to you. But what does this tell us? See, God has already, from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, given us a picture that Israel and his family are sun, moon, and 12 stars. That's one of the images of Israel. There are other images that the Bible uses, that God uses to describe the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. The olive tree, at times the fig tree. There's a number of them. But this is one that's actually very interesting because it's the first book of the Bible. And by the last book of the Bible, this reference is given. Now, if you don't know the Bible, it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you do know the Bible, you see that God is tying this thing together from the beginning to the end, from the Alpha. To the Omega And the woman is the nation of Israel Now the nation of Israel Has a child A male child And who is this male child? Verse 5 This male child is to rule all the nations With a rod of iron And then this child will be caught up to God And to his throne Well this is pretty clear This is the Lord Jesus That the nation of Israel The Jewish people Gave birth to a Messiah A male Messiah, who would not only be the Messiah, but then would be caught up to heaven and reign from heaven, and eventually for a thousand years here on earth. Now, who's the dragon? Well, that's the easiest one, right? Because God's like, I'm not even going to try to get you to figure this out yourself. I'm just going to say it right out there. Verse 9, for those of us who are like, uh, Lord, just just put the cookies on the lower shelf, okay? Because it's just, you know, <laughs> Revelation's already difficult enough. Could you just please... Dragons, I mean, you know, help us out here. And, and he does. He does. Even before we ask, he answers. The great dragon that was thrown down is the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, so it's pretty clear now. The woman is Israel. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And the Jewish people, out of them comes the Messiah. And Satan hates both of them. When the woman has the child... And this is the story of Christmas. What happens? Satan tries to devour the child. I mean, literally, King Herod tries to kill every male child born under the age of two in the Bethlehem area. This was literally fulfilled. And we see that battle because Satan hates Israel. And he hates the Messiah. And he hates anyone that loves Israel and anyone that hates the Messiah. This is the story of Revelation chapter 12. Probably the fastest you've ever heard it taught. Nevertheless, I encourage you, study it on your own. Because when you do, it reinforces this idea that this is why the world hates Israel and the Jewish people. Because God loves them, and Satan hates them. And there's really no other explanation. And then you go through all of... End times prophecy, Revelation 16, when Satan is gathering all the forces of the earth to come to Armageddon to destroy Israel once and for all, because Satan is going to, to the very end, the absolute very end, try to destroy every Jew and the nation of Israel. And the scriptures are filled with this. In fact, Daniel and Zechariah are very clear that the Antichrist, demonically driven Antichrist, is literally going to invade the nation of Israel and conquer it in the last days and set up his throne, his pavilion in Israel. Eventually, he's going to sit in the temple itself. Now, why does this matter? It matters because never before have the Jewish people in the nation of Israel felt so isolated, felt so threatened, What if the Lord staves off a war for a while because He wants His church to gather in Israel? That He wants, while the rest of the world turns away from Israel and hates Israel and abandons Israel and cuts her loose, that the true followers of Jesus Christ. What if we were to go up the one-way street against traffic? What if we were to go towards Israel while the rest of the world went against her? What if we were to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords in the city of the great King? What if we were to Pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Jerusalem. What if we were to study through the book of Joel, the real book of Joel, not my books, the book of Joel, line by line, verse by verse, three chapters in two days. What is that book about? That book is about blow a trumpet in Zion. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Now, if it was near when Joel was told to say it, I'm thinking it's a little nearer now. And the nation of Israel needs to see the people who know the word of God, who love the word of God, who believe the word of God, who obey the word of God, who teach the word of God, to come and stand with them, to show them unconditional love and unwavering support at this critical hour. At the moment when the world is turning against Israel, shouldn't true followers of Jesus Christ bless Israel and the Jewish people with the everlasting, unconditional love of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Shouldn't we want them to know God in a real and personal way like we do? Shouldn't we want them to have eternal security and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they're going to heaven when they die? Shouldn't we affirm God's love and good news for them? Shouldn't we affirm God's special place and plan and purpose for them? Shouldn't we stand with them and defend them against all attacks, foreign and domestic, especially at this critical moment when the Lord is coming back and we know it and not everyone in that region does? This is the mission of the Joshua Fund. This is my personal calling and my wife and my children. We have four children, uh, Caleb, Jacob, Jonah, and little Noah, 16, 14, 12, and six. And people say, oh, a little gap there, six years. Why did you have a Noah? Well, because Jesus said in Matthew 24 that he's not coming back again until the days of Noah. So we thought, you know, if we're holding him back, (laughs) we better have a little Noah. And as our family looks at what the scriptures say and what's happening in the world and that the Lord is coming back, we feel drawn even more to go and serve with humility and gentleness the people of Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And we want you to be part of that as well. Let's close in prayer. And Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy. Thank you that while Satan is trying to destroy what you've built and created, that you are not gonna let that happen ultimately, and you've called us to intercede, to learn what you're doing there, to pray for the people there, to give to the work there, to go and, and, and see what you're doing and serve there. Lord, help us be faithful to you, a Jewish Messiah who came to Israel, died in Israel, rose again in Israel, and is coming back to Israel. It's not that you don't love the neighbors. I look forward to teaching that next message in the next service. But Lord, I thank you that you do love the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And you command us to as well. May you bless this congregation as they individually figure out, Lord, what do you want me to do in response to these truths? We pray these things in the name of our great Lord and Savior and soon coming King,
0: Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. If you found this podcast valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are, what you want us to talk about on this show. Do you have a question you want Joel to answer? Go to joshuafun.com and click the contact us button. Feedback from you is incredibly valuable to us as we continue to develop this podcast. For Joel Rosenberg, thank you for listening to Inside the Epicenter.